Welcome back to the podcast on Germany. My name is Jacob, and this is episode 35, Roman Forts. So, some updates. The t-shirt still hasn't come in yet. Apparently, they're on back order. I just need to stop giving dates when we're going to get stuff, because apparently, the world is out to prove me wrong. First the logo, now the t-shirts. But, we finally got the logo in. It looks amazing. I'm sure the t-shirts will be the same thing. So, at least another week, maybe more. As a reminder, we have in about two months, on October 31st, all podcast eve. So, if there are any shows that you listen to other than myself that you would love to participate in this event, tell them about it. Remember, all they have to do is dress up or adapt the facial hair of one of the characters from their show, give a little bio about that character, give a little bio about their show, and then put hashtag all podcast Eve. That way people can click on that hashtag and they can go on Facebook and on Twitter and whatever other social media they decide to put it on and they can find other podcast shows that are doing the exact same thing. So it's just a great way for the community to talk to one another and allows you, the listener, to explore other shows. You guys voted for Kaiser Wilhelm II, and I'm working really hard on that. I gotta tell you, I'm not used to having such a thick mustache, and it's not that comfortable. But I'm not gonna have the complete mustache. There's no way I'm gonna get it to that length. At least I don't think I will be able to. But I'll have something very, very similar to it. All right. So, that's it for news. Let's rewind, go back two weeks ago, and talk about what happened last episode. So, Tiberius takes over from his fallen brother, and he runs a campaign that saw him traveling around Germania. He's not exploring, he's not really adding anything new to Roman knowledge What he's doing is he's pacifying the region that his brother had explored from the Rhine to the Elbe. However, there are no major battles mentioned. No tribe is crushed. And thus the peace that were given by Tiberius is rather weak. Unstable. And then after Tiberius' campaign, he retires. He goes back to the Mediterranean, he's going to take a break for a bit, and so they send in Lucius, and Lucius was the worst person they could put in this position. He was a cruel man that during his brief reign as governor began turning the entire region that had just been pacified against Rome. And so we ended last episode with Lucius retreating to the Rhine River and begging for support, only being denied due to the high tensions with Parthia over in the east. So right now, it's 180. Lucius is sitting on the Rhine, sending out reports, Hey, help me, help me, help me, I'm in trouble, I need help. And he finally receives word from Rome. But it's not the reinforcements he was expecting. It's his replacement. They send Marcus Vicinius. And the Roman 
Empire is hoping that Marcus Vicinius will be able to pacify and rectify all the injuries that Lucius had left in his reign as governor. Dio tells us, though, that the same year that Marcus arrives, Roman traitors are kidnapped at one of the local Germanic tribes and then murdered as a sign of resistance and displeasement to the Roman authorities. And for the next three years, Marcus fights a massive Germanic rebellion. But that's all we're really told about in those three years, is that he's fighting this rebellion. Seriously, the information on this rebellion is extremely vague. We know that the rebellion takes three years, and that it was going so bad for the Romans that they brought Tiberius out of retirement to fix it. The lack of information is a little disturbing. Just like with Tiberius' campaign before, we're not getting all the information that we need. It could be that Marcus was being unable to find and pin down the German warriors and bring them to battle. It could be that his units that were sent out were ambushed and were being eliminated unless they stayed within their legions. Overall, all we can really say is that the, whatever Marcus was doing was not enough. And Tiberius, he's brought back in. He's forced to fight once more in this region. And he's able to finally pacify it. it takes him three years to do it, but it's finally pacified. For Marcus, he's given a triumph and then he's kicked out of office. He's no longer left as governor. He was brought in to deal with the problems left over by Lucius. He's failed completely. So why keep him around? Instead, Tiberius is going to take over for a little bit and then he's going to be replaced by Saturnus. Now we're not going to continue with the timeline for right now, we're going to take a break from it. But the important thing to take away is that the Germans are not pacified as the Romans would like. They have a rebellion. They took six years off being ruled by a very cruel governor. And then they spend another three years in rebellion. Now, I know some of you might be going, wait, wait, Jacob, why... Why are you ending three years of warfare at eight minutes? And it's just because there's literally not much I can talk about. I gave you all the information I have and expanded upon it as much as I can. Instead, we're going to take the rest of this episode and talk a little bit more about the actual Roman occupation. Now, yes, it's a short period of Roman and German relations, for the majority of the Germans, but it's still an important period, and it does shape certain aspects of their future relationship. So for the rest of this episode, we're going to talk about who of the Roman Empire was inside Germany. We've talked about the leaders and the governors, but who else would have been there? 
we're also going to talk about something that the Romans do throughout their empire. We're going to talk about their engineering feats, their buildings, and talk about how that could have shaped Germany. Emphasis on the could. So first, let's talk about the people. Who is in Germany? Well, there are two main groups of people that will be in Germany. Outside, of course, the governors and the generals. The governors and the generals, they are going to be your high-level, first-class autocrats. Okay, these people have the connections, they have the power, they have complete control in the region outside of Augustus. And Augustus isn't going to get involved too much. He has an entire empire to run. As long as the region's not up in flames, he's going to let you do your thing. So we have the generals and we have the governors, but what are the two main groups of Romans that are going to be involved in Germania? Well, the first is a group that we've seen mentioned from time to time when the Germans want to show their discontent with the Romans. In fact, this same group paid the price for this latest rebellion. Do you remember who it was? Well, if you're guessing the merchants, you're correct. The merchants are going to be involved in Germania. They're the ones who are going to be going out to all the Germanic tribes, bringing Roman goods and trading for amber, fur, or craftsman material from the Germans. They are also the ones who usually pay the price for Germanic anger because, honestly, they don't have any weapons, they don't have any protection of any sort. They're out there on their own. So if the Germans want to throw a fit and they want to take it out on someone, well, the Roman merchants are pretty easy pickings. There's also the point to say that I'm sure these merchants probably didn't do their best to get on the good side of these Germanic tribes because they knew they had the empire backing them up. And that has a tendency to make people cocky. So, the merchants might have had it coming sometimes, but overall, being a merchant in Germania, you were a target. So, what's the other group? Well, it's soldiers. It's the legions. These are the majority of the people who are involved in Germania at this point. These are the might of the Roman Empire that allows them to conquer Germany, make it into another province. But they serve more than just an army. They are the engineers that will build the roads, the forts, and eventually the towns that could turn this wild province into a glorious and prosperous one for Rome. They're the peacekeepers that keep the tribes pacified. And they are the new settlers for this Roman province once they can establish themselves. And so it makes sense that out of 
the groups that you could have involved in a new province, the army is the one that you have most invested in the region. Now, there are five legions that are placed within the province. In total, the Roman army consisted of 28 legions. So to have more than a sixth of them placed in Germany tells you how invested the Roman army was. The legions involved include the 17th, the 18th, the 19th, which are about to get extremely infamous in our show, and the 1st and the 5th. So 17th through 19th, and then 1 and 5. Now you're probably wondering, okay, what's the history of these legions? You know, give us a little bit of background on them. And so I did some digging, and this is some of the stuff I was able to find on them. The first has a mixed history at best before entering Germania. You see, the first had been created by Julius Caesar during the Civil Wars, and had been sent to Spain only to perform so terribly that it was actually stripped of its title. Uh, they were defeated left and right by the Spanish tribes. And when the Romans were finally able to establish order once more in their region, they said the first had totally botched the job and was no longer worth their title. And so they lost it. The title was an important honor for the legion, and to lose that was like losing an eagle. To make up for this poor performance, they were sent to serve on the Rhine under Drusius, and there they would take part in his exploratory campaigns, and apparently serve with such distinction that it would gain the new name Germanica, or of Germania. So the first goes from having a terrible time in Spain to becoming a new honored legion of the army. I'm sure they played a major role in keeping Drusius safe during his many ambushes during the first and second campaign. The next one we have is the fifth. And the fifth is actually really important to our friends over at the French History Podcast. These are the Larks, and they were created by Julius Caesar in 52 BC out of Gaul. Now this legion is very special because it is the first one to be made entirely out of foreigners, in this case from Gallic warriors. And it does point to the future for Roman arms, but we're not dealing with that right now. That's for further down the road when we're dealing towards the end of the Roman Empire. For now, let's talk about why they were called the Larks. They gained this nickname because of the beautiful bird feathers that they would wear in their helmets to signify that they were part of the fifth. We're told that they served with distinction in the Civil War and are remarkably noted for holding their ground against an elephant charge in 46 BC. However, upon their return to Gaul, the fifth was ambushed by the Germans. 
You're probably wondering which time was this. Well, this was the time that Marcus Lolius received word that the Germans were rampaging across the Rhine, and he sent the 5th out alone to go deal with it, only to be caught off guard by his own routing cavalry and then have the entire legion rout due to the attacking Germans, at which point they lost their eagle. This would eventually cause the start of Drusius's campaign, his first campaign into Germania. But the fifth was the one who took part in that debacle. And then we're told that because they lost the eagle, the fifth fought with such intensity in the Germanic campaigns because they wanted to prove that they weren't going to run again, that they were warriors for Rome. As for the other three, the 17th, 18th, and 19th, well, not much is known other than that they're from around 40 BC after the Battle of Philippi. Now, historians have debated as to if these legions were involved in the planned invasion of Sicily during the Civil War to quell Aquitania or just placed in garrison. In fact, the best information we have for any of these legions comes from the 19th. And that's due to finding a single iron catapult head stamped with L-E-G-X-I-X. Legion 19, which was found in Bavaria. And this tells us that they probably were involved in the conquest of that region in 15 BC. And they may even had a title based off of that conquest. But we're not sure. What we do know is that these legions served with Drusius and Tiberius and were probably just as experienced as the first and the fifth. Now you're probably sitting there and going, okay, Jacob, you gave me a detailed history of the first. You gave me a detailed history of the fifth. What's with these three? Why don't we have as much information for them? Well, a lot of the information was stripped. A lot of the information we would have for these three legions was purposely lost because of the disaster of the Teutonburg Forest. But we're not there yet. We're getting there, but we're not there yet. So we have our five legions. We have one that's redeemed itself in Germania after its disaster in Spain. We have another that's entirely made up of Gallic warriors that has redeemed itself in Germania after losing its eagle. And then we have three that have some experience, at least, because we know that they were involved, or at least one of them was involved, in Bavaria. Question is, we do know that they were involved in the campaigns. They were marching around, getting ambushed, going to abandoned towns, setting fire to those towns, grabbing what grain they could. What were they doing during the off-season? After Drusus was dead... And Tiberius ends his campaigns. What are these legions doing? Well, these legions would have been building roads. Remember, for the Romans, the legions were also their main source of engineers and labor. If you remember last episode, we talked about how Lucius started to build roads in Germania. He started to build plank roads. 
and these would have been the mainstay for early Roman occupation because they were perfect for the German swamp lands. Germany had plenty of wood to use in this region, and it was a perfect solution to work in a terrain that would constantly sink under your feet. Crushed stone and heavy cobblestone is not going to do that. Once they've built some roads, this allows merchants to travel freely from tribe to tribe. It allows the army to move quickly from tribe to tribe. And it starts showing the benefits of having the Romans involved in your territory. The Germans didn't have roads before. Now they do. Now they don't have to walk in the swamps. Now they have this nice road that can be used. It's a bonus when it comes to having the Romans involved. And you know that they would be stressing this to the nobles of the Germanic tribes. That, hey, we can build you roads. We can help you get around. We can help you get the goods that you need as fast as possible. But when they're not building these roads, well, then they build something that all Germans would notice. Something that reminds them that the Romans are here and possibly here to stay. And this is, of course, forts. They're building forts. Now, we saw forts being built by Drusius, and these forts would have been expanded with each new governor. These forts would serve as their basis for control in a region. These forts would serve as home for the legionnaires. It would allow them to easily counter rebellions, to make sure that the merchants were traveling safely. It gave them a safe place to defend against overwhelming numbers. When rebellions would rise up, the Romans could retreat to these forts in safety. It would allow them to protect their supplies and serve as a symbol of Rome's military might. However, it was more than just the symbol and this place of protection. It held several important buildings that would be required if Rome was going to control the region and then spread. First, we have the basic buildings, such as housing for officers and soldiers. But then there's also hospitals. There's granaries for supplies. There's storehouses for merchants to store their goods. And extremely important, there would be craft and maintenance workshops. Now, the reason why these workshops would be important to the Germans is because ironwork, metalwork, would be the weakest point of any of the Germanic tribes. And so to have access to these Roman goods for trade, for gifts, that would build strong relations with the Germans. These forts would provide centers for such trade and make Roman influence in the area grow. Now, these forts would have been built all in the exact same pattern because the Romans, well, they don't change something if it's not broke. Heck, they usually don't change things even if they are broke. They just don't like changing things. 
let's take a minute and build one of these Roman forts ourselves. Now, I mean, imaginatively. I would love to build a Roman fort with you guys, but uh, I don't think we're there yet. Give it a little bit. Soon. Very soon. Maybe for, you know, the next year's anniversary if we can build a Roman fort. But for now, we'll just do this mentally. First, to give you a general idea, the fort would have been laid out like a playing card. It would have been rectangular in shape with rounded corners. The Romans start with the road. They build their roads first. And in the heart of the fort would be the crossroads. And this would always be in a cross shape. And these roads would correspond with each of the four gates leading into the fort. Next would come the barracks, which would occupy usually half, if not more, of the fort's space. These buildings were long and rectangular and arranged in rows, kind of like apartment complexes. Now, while it's going to be nice for the troops to finally have a roof over their head, not have to worry about laying on the dirt, the barracks weren't that amazing. Each room was cramped. A squad would have two tiny rooms to use. And one of those rooms would be for their equipment, their swords, their shields, their armor. Anything that they were carrying with them would go into that second room. So the squad really had to share one tiny room. So yeah, you're in the Roman army, you know your squad pretty well. Now outside of their actual sleeping material, each sleeping room would have a chimney for heat, which was going to be necessary for these Roman troops who weren't going to be used to the harsh winters of Germania. But that's it for these rooms. They don't have anything else other than this chimney and places for the troops to sleep. If you were a centurion or a standard bearer, you got your own room. So a little bit more furnishing. You don't have to share your room with a couple of other guys. You get your own chimney. It's not as bad. But it's nowhere near as good as the commander. If you were the commander, you had your own house. It would be the largest building within the fort. It was so large that it actually required its own staff of servants and slaves to make it run efficiently. If we look at Fort Vetria in Xanten, Germany, the house for the commander there was 243 by 310 feet, or 75,000 square feet in size. It contained six open courtyards, with one of them shaped like a horse track, and it was encompassed entirely on the west side of the fort complex. Now, this one is a little bit special because it, this fort was there for a really long time. It wasn't part of just this early occupation of Germania. Now, this building would have all the commodities that a Roman aristocrat would expect due to his position. And it wouldn't be the only one within a fort. The commandant and the tribunes would each have their own, but smaller, version 
within the fort complex. The fort would serve as an administration hub for the area. Soldiers would protect the clerks, the merchants, and the tax officials who would come to the region to do the business of the empire. The headquarters would serve as the home for these individuals. It would be a square building built within the center of the fort. German traders and ambassadors would be in and out of this building throughout the week. They'd be there for meetings and negotiations and trade with the Romans, and it would represent the heart of German and Roman interactions within the fort. Now, what's the one thing that we haven't really talked about yet for a fort? What's the one thing that all Germans would instantly see and recognize when they first spotted the fort? Well, that would be the walls. And the walls weren't the first thing they built. In fact, that would be after the barracks, after they had set up shop. Then they'd start building the walls. Now, nothing showed off the power of the Roman army than their walls, especially to the Germans, who would, as we'll see later on, have a terrible time when it comes to siege warfare. Now, when the fort is first built, the walls would be built from sod, earth, dirt. The walls would be 10 to 15 feet thick. Funnily enough, our modern-day turf cutters that we use have not changed much from the Roman age. Turf cutters for the Romans were a blade shaped like a half-circle that would have been mounted on a pole in a T-shape. And this would allow them to mold the earth into their blocks. Now, the reason why they would build with sod first is because it's very easy to create, very easy to find, and very easy to mold and form into a wall. These walls would be easily built and would be nearly vertical. But sod walls weren't the last phase for a Roman wall. They were just the first because sod walls need constant repair due to the weather, due to the wind, the rain, and even the sun itself will start to deteriorate a sod wall. And so once the Romans have built their sod wall, well then they go start building a more permanent wall. And this one would be using timber and earth. Now the reason why they didn't just start with this is because these take more time compared to sod walls. But on the plus side, they required less maintenance. Would have these walls either based on a parallel palisade wall, where the tree trunks would be stood up and placed in a line, or a more complex design that would have two palisade walls with a bracing wall in between the two, and then filling the space between the two palisade walls and then the space between the two bracing walls, it, they would just fill it with earth. This would make the walls larger and sturdier, but the trade-off, of course, was that it's going to take a lot more time than just building the one palisade wall. Now again, this wasn't the final stage for a Roman fort. At least, not the planned final stage for a Roman fort. If the Romans were going to make it a permanent home, then they would move on to the next stage, which was stone. Now stone was the last stage because 
it took a lot of time and you needed special craftsmanship. You couldn't just rely on the Roman army to provide your workforce. You need stonemasons to come and chip the blocks, get them in the perfect shape. That These walls would never be built in time of war because of how long they took and then how much danger that would put your stonemasons, your expertise force, in if you put them in a fort that's in hostile territory. These stone walls would be just as thick and just as tall as the wooden and sod walls. They would also have on top alternating squares that you will see a lot of times on medieval castles. And there would be two to three feet between each of these capstones. Now the Roman defenses didn't just start and end with the walls. They would also build trenches that would be in the shape of a V. And they would go all around except in front of the gates. The gates themselves would be taller than the wall and they would have towers for defense, but they wouldn't have this trench. And if given enough time, these trenches would be turned into moats. The difference between a trench and a moat was that while the trench would stay at about seven feet, the moats would be dug down to 12 feet and then filled with water. Now, given time, given peace in the area, these forts would eventually become centers for Roman colonies. Civilians would start to build their houses around the forts, bringing in money and trade and their culture into the region. This would lead to the Germans becoming used to and involved in Roman culture and the establishment of a Roman Germania as another one of the loyal provinces of the empire until the empire ended due to corruption and stagnation. Well, at least it would if the Romans had been given the time to get to this phase. Problem is, they don't. The civilians never arrive. They never have time to set up shop to really start building these colonies in Germania. Instead, most of these forts never make it past the sod phase, let alone the timber phase. Instead, the province of Germania collapses, and the Rhine goes from this internal highway for Roman transportation to once more being the frontline defense against Germanic barbarians. Alright, that will do it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed learning a bit more about what the Romans were doing in Germany, about the legions that were involved. If you are enjoying this show, please leave a review and comment on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you get the show, and please let me know if there is a podcast database that you went to and you can't find our show on. I'd love to make sure that everyone has access to the show. I hope you all have a great week. 